Oh, by the way, while we wait for the last uh, group of people to come in, let me just tell you a little bit what we're going to do here, finishing up on the Gospels. Well, finishing up. We're not even done with the first Gospel. But um, we're going to uh, finish the book of Matthew today, and uh, then we'll do Mark probably in just um, uh, one hour next time, and then Luke, not sure how long we'll spend on Luke, and then John, and then I think after we go through all four of the Gospels, um, we'll just have one talk on basically why did Jesus have to die, and we'll try to um, answer that question. The people at Delhi Palace appreciate your business. Um, it was funny, Dorothy and I were there last week, and uh, they came up and said they're seeing a lot of medical students come in who became addicted to the food uh, through this Bible study. So I thought that was kind of funny. All right, so let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you again for another chance just to quiet our minds and to uh, come close to you. And uh, may our discussion just now as we consider the words, the actions of your son, May these become a living reality within each one of us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to talk today in Matthew about uh, a number of interesting exchanges that Jesus had with the Pharisees, who were always trying to uh, trap him. Uh, remember, they didn't like his revelation of who God was. It was not at all what they wanted in the Messiah. And so they were always out to get him. And some of these are kind of interesting stories. Uh, this one uh, describes uh, paying the temple tax. When Jesus and his disciples came to Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and asked, does your teacher pay the temple tax? Of course, Peter answered. When Peter went into the house, Jesus spoke up, Simon, what is your opinion? Who pays duties or taxes to the kings of the world, the citizens of the country or the foreigners? That's an easy question. I mean, he, he, Jesus makes a different application. Who pays the tax? The citizens or the foreigners? And, of course, it's the foreigners. And uh, Now, the reason this is a, a, a trap, really, is that the temple tax, uh, there were certain people that were um, not required to pay the temple tax. If you were a Levite or a priest or a prophet, uh, you didn't have to pay the temple tax. And so the trick here was, uh, hey, uh, does Jesus pay the temple tax? And uh, Peter here by saying, well, sure, is basically admitting, well, Jesus isn't anything special. He pays the temple tax just like anything else. So Jesus uh, kind of brings it up here uh, with Peter. And then we have an interesting way that Jesus has of resolving this. Well then, replied Jesus, that means that the citizens don't have to pay. And certainly God, the creator of the universe, should not have to pay the temple tax here in human form. And so notice how Jesus... Uh, I hate to say gets out of the situation, but just the, the clever way that he resolves this. But we don't want to offend these people. So go to the lake and drop in a line, pull up the first fish you hook, and in its mouth you will find a coin worth enough for my temple tax and yours. Take it and pay them our taxes. And uh, so if someone were to say, well, you know, Jesus, he's certainly not a prophet. He pays a temple tax. Prophets aren't supposed to pay the temple tax. Well, then you would have to include the uh, PS story. Oh, but the way he paid it was he got the money out of a fish. All right. So he pays it, but yet at the same time, he reveals his divinity. And so problem solved. Okay, another interesting uh, dilemma here. That same day, some Sadducees came to Jesus and claimed that people will not rise from death. 
And remember when we went through Bible translation, we talked about the Sadducees who held only to the five books of Moses. That was their Bible. And they did not find anything about the resurrection of dead in the books of Moses. And so from their point of view, there was no resurrection of the dead. Teacher, they said. And you, you could tell this was, uh, they'd had this ongoing debate with the Pharisees for a long time. And this was their scenario that ca- they came up with uh, that perhaps the Pharisees couldn't answer, answer. Teacher, they said. Moses said that if a man who has no children dies, his brother must marry the widow so that they can have children who will be considered the dead man's children. Now, There were seven brothers who used to live here. The oldest got married and died without having children, so he left his widow to his brother. The same thing happened to the second brother, to the third, and finally to all seven. Last of all, the woman died. Now, on the day when the dead rise to life, and of course they don't believe this, they're they're kind of ridiculing here, on the day when the dead rise to life, whose wife will she be? All of them had married her. And Jesus answered, how wrong you are. It is because you don't know the scriptures or God's power. For when the dead rise to life, they will be like angels in heaven and will not marry. Now, as for the dead rising to life, haven't you ever read what God has told you? He said, and it's interesting, he quotes Exodus here, something they would agree with. Uh, Yep, this is our Bible. He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is the God of the living, not of the dead. And when the crowds heard this, they were amazed at his teachings. I mean, the the Sadducees had never been answered like this. So this is not uh, uh, meant to be like in a timeline or a proof of uh, the state of the dead or anything like that. It's interesting when you read the Luke account, he is the God of the living, not of the dead. For to him, for to God, all are alive. Remember Jesus, anytime he was brought to someone who who died, uh, he'd say, well, they're not dead, they're just sleeping. Let me go wake them up. Okay, so in God's mind, everyone is alive. And so some of the teachers of the law spoke up. A good answer, teacher. And wouldn't you like Jesus on your side if you're having a theological debate? And so even though the Pharisees didn't appreciate Jesus, he silenced the Sadducees, and so they liked that. Okay, so uh, we'll, we, we appreciate, Jesus, that you just uh, defeated our theological enemies here. Okay, but now the Pharisees have a chance. So when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, a teacher of the law, tried to trap him with a question. Teacher, he asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important commandment. The second most important commandment is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Again, he's quoting this right out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. The whole law of Moses and the teachings of the prophets depend on these two commandments. And uh, it's interesting here how this man uh, responded. The teachers of the law said to Jesus, well done, teacher. Remember, he came to trap Jesus. And he would seem to be surprised at this answer. Well done, teacher. It is true, as you say, that only the Lord is God and that there is no other God but he. And you must love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you must love your neighbor as you love yourself. It is more important to obey these two commandments than to offer on the altar animals and other sacrifices to God. And Jesus noticed how wise his answer was. And so he told him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after this, nobody dared ask Jesus any more questions because of the way he uh, had responded. But uh, 
I'm going to come back to this, the two great commandments, but uh, what do you think about this? Jesus would say, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And uh, by some understandings, the kingdom of God, well, that's when we all get to heaven. Uh, it was Jesus saying, you know what? You're just about to die and enter the kingdom of God. No, he's, he's saying, you, you're, you're touching on it. You're getting close. That's it. You're, you're coming into agreement with me. And this phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, uh, it's mentioned so many times in Matthew. And so I want to kind of try to get to some understanding. What does this mean? You are not far from the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? First of all, where is it located? And Jesus would say very clearly the location. So some Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. And his answer was, the kingdom of God does not come in such a way as to be seen. No one will say, look, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you, or in some translations, among you. So the kingdom that Jesus came to establish, it's not an earthly kingdom. It's not a kingdom that uh, has physical dominance over other kingdoms of the world. It's a kingdom that is to be within and among. Okay, so can we map it out a little further about this kingdom of God? Jesus would uh, describe it in many different ways. Remember his, when he first began to speak, this was his message. Turn to God and change the way you think and act because the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is near. And he taught in the synagogues and spread the good news of the kingdom. And many times we associate the good news with the good news about the kingdom or the good news about the king of the kingdom. Okay, so again, what does it really mean? What is the kingdom of God? Well, he tried to explain it. He used parables to tell them many things. This is one you're familiar with. Once there was a man who went out to sow grain. As he scattered the seed in the field, some of it fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. And you'll remember how the weeds choked out some of the seeds and the plants and some became very fruitful. But then as he interprets the parable... He would say, those who hear the message about the kingdom, the seeds, this is the message about the kingdom, but do not understand it are like the seeds that fell along the path. The evil one comes and snatches it away, uh, what was sown in them. So the kingdom, there's a message about the kingdom, the good news about the kingdom. And it is like seed and it is something to be internalized. And again, on this uh, same parable, he would say, and the seeds sown in the good soil stand for those who hear the message and understand it. Okay, they understand the message about the kingdom. They internalize it. And notice they bear fruit. And again, right here in Matthew 13, he would say, otherwise, the people who don't understand it, their eyes would see if they could just internalize it. They could just understand it. Their eyes would see, their ears would hear, their minds would understand and they would turn to me, says God, and I would heal them. So it is a message to be internalized about the kingdom. And it is a message that ultimately brings healing. Now, just the word salvation, you know, you hear the word the salve in there. Salvation is ultimately healing. And this message uh, is meant to change us. And it's interesting here. This, this passage is quoted in Matthew as well, but uh, I like the way uh, uh, Mark uh, writes this, Jesus would say, well, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? And it's almost like we imagine Jesus looking around. What can we compare it with? What parable shall we use to explain it? I mean, there's really nothing, uh, our earthly experience and the kingdoms of the world are nothing like the kingdom of God. So what can Jesus use to explain it? Well, it's like this. 
A man takes a mustard seed, the smallest seed in the world, and plants it in the ground. After a while, it grows up and becomes the biggest of all plants. It puts out such large branches that the birds come and make their nests in its shade. So this message, and we're trying to define what it is, small seed, mustard seed, internalized, uh, has the potential when it fully unfolds to result in the the greatest of trees here, the the mustard uh, tree. So Jesus told them another parable. Kingdom of heaven is like this. A woman takes some yeast and mixes it with a bushel of flour until the whole batch of dough rises. So again, it's like a seed, it's like yeast, it's internalized, it works throughout the whole body, the mind. It, it changes a person through and through. Remember Jesus said, you must eat my flesh, you must drink my blood. Uh, it is something that becomes thoroughly assimilated within us. Well, how about this? A kingdom of, the kingdom of heaven is like this. A man happens to find a treasure hidden in a field. He covers it up again and is so happy that he goes and sells everything he has and then goes back and buys that field. Now, what about a message would cause such a craving in us that you would give up everything? Also, the kingdom of heaven is like this. A man is looking for fine pearls. And when he finds one that is unusually fine, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that pearl. Okay, so it's, it's something that is, uh, as it is better and better understood within us, it is something that becomes unbelievably uh, desirable. You'd give up everything for this. And then finally in this passage about the kingdom of God, he said to his disciples, do you understand all these things? Yes, they said, we do. And then he added, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. And I think the meaning here is once the the kingdom of God, and I think ultimately the message about what the king is like and the message about the way the king runs his kingdom, as that becomes better and better understood and becomes a part of us, um, well, we're like, uh, let's say, a homeowner. And do you expect someone to bring out of their storeroom old things or new things? I mean, you just expect old things to come out. Um, But um, I think as we really begin to understand who God is, uh, we look back and everything we read about the Bible, Old Testament, things that maybe seem like, well, there's not much more understanding there, um, everything becomes to uh, unfold into greater and greater truth. So we bring out uh, gems of new truth as well as old. And uh, really, reading the Bible is kind of like that. I mean, Again, very few books I'd ever want to read twice. You read them once, well, maybe twice, but uh, three times, four times. And, uh, but reading the Bible, you know, it's just like going through layers. It gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, seems limitless, really, the understanding, the truth that is there. And I think uh, the key that unlocks all of that truth is ultimately the understanding that uh, Jesus was God in human form, perfect revelation of God's character. And uh, that core truth may not seem that special. First time I heard it, okay, Jesus is God, big deal. Uh, But no, really, internalized that the one who walked around was fully God, that's what God is like, uh, I think unwraps everything else. The kingdom of God, who receives it? Well, notice, I tell you the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now, that's amazing. I mean, people who read their Bible every day were going to church, keeping the Sabbath, paying tithe, doing all these wonderful things. And yet, who is entering the kingdom of God? Tax collectors, fishermen, 
prostitutes. And I think here's why. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Okay, these people, uh, you know, didn't think they had it all figured out. And uh, they recognized their spiritual poverty and they were prepared, their minds were prepared to receive something new. Okay, the Pharisees were completely hardened. They understood it all. And uh, they didn't want anything that deviated from their understanding of truth. So again, uh, the kingdom of God, it's an upside down kingdom from any kingdom of the world. Who's the greatest? The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who humbles himself and becomes like this child. Okay, it's not a uh, hierarchy like we know kingdoms of the world where there's a president and then all the way down, a person of authority who controls people under him or her. Uh, Kingdom of God is not like that. The greatest is the one who's the servant. Uh, The greatest is the one who's the most humble. In Mark, they came to Capernaum and after going indoors, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you arguing about on the road? And imagine a very awkward moment here. They would not answer him because on the road, they'd been arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. Uh, The disciples really just didn't seem to get it. When we get to Acts and we read about uh, Jesus, he's just about to go back up to heaven. And the disciples say, now are you going to establish your kingdom on earth? I mean, it just must have been a letdown after all of this. No, the kingdom of God is within. You must be the servant. My kingdom is not of this world. Um, for them to ask that question. So again, they're wondering, okay, let's, let's understand the hierarchy here. Who's going to be the strongest? And Jesus sat down, called the 12 disciples and said to them, whoever wants to be first must place himself last of all and be the servant of all. Again, it is not comparable to kingdoms of the world. It's night and day different. And if we were to read on in Mark, this is when Jesus takes a child and puts him on his, his lap. And again, always using the, the child uh, to... Uh, kind of go against this uh, hierarchy mindset. Again, back to Matthew 20. So Jesus called them all together and said, now he's going to describe the kingdom of the world. You know that the rulers of the heathen have power over them and the leaders have complete authority. That's, that's how we know kingdoms of the world. This, however, is not the way it shall be among you. My kingdom is not this way. If, you, if one of you wants to be great, you must be the servant of the rest. And if one of you wants to be first, you must be the slave of the others. Like the Son of Man, who did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life to redeem many people. So again, this this dramatic contrast, and I think it's it's such a new paradigm. Uh, We're so used to the way the kingdom of the world operates to understand that God's kingdom is so contrary to this. I don't know if any of you watched this show. I actually haven't, so maybe I shouldn't put this up. But I understand Dr. House is kind of the epitome of an arrogant, rude uh, doctor. And um, so, uh, you know, I just think uh, really just considering medical students becoming doctors, there are very much uh, two different paths. I mean, becoming a physician, there is a lot of power that comes with that. Potentially, uh, a lot of wealth that comes with that. Potentially, a lot of pride. Remember how Jesus would talk about the Pharisees? You love to get the first seats and to be called rabbi, teacher, well, you know, to be called, oh, it's Dr. So-and-so coming. I mean, it it can very much play into that same kind of a mindset. So there's pride, power, wealth that you can go totally down that road as a physician. And of course, a physician, I mean, is in the perfect place to serve as well. I mean, you don't have to go to Africa to be a servant as a physician. 
Uh, it is a mindset. It's a way of treating each and every person that you come into contact with. And notice, just we'll just contrast the two kingdoms. Satan's kingdom is very much based on the kingdoms of the world that we're familiar with. I mean, these, this familiar passage in Isaiah, they just so much speaks to the way Satan's kingdom operates. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. And notice, what's, what is Satan's mindset? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I mean, that is someone trying to climb the ladder of success. Uh, Satan's kingdom really is survival of the fittest. Um, his kingdom is based on, uh, really, uh, I will kill you if necessary to survive. And God came ultimately in human form with exactly the opposite uh, mindset. I mean, what did he say? I'm willing to lay down my life that others might live. Okay, one kills to live and another one dies that others might live. We quoted this in uh, Philippians recently, but I think it provides such a, a powerful contrast uh, to this verse in Isaiah. Notice the attitude that we should have is the one that Christ had. Now, we tend to emphasize this is what Christ did. But notice the passage starts out. The attitude we should have is the same one that Christ had. What was Christ's attitude? He always had the nature of God, but he did not think that by force he should try to remain equal with God. Instead of this, of his own free will, he gave up all he had and took the nature of a servant. He became a human being and appeared in human likeness. He was humble and walked the path of obedience all the way to death, his death on the cross. So again, that's incredible. God is like that. But again, we are to have the same uh, kind of an attitude. And so the message of Jesus who came and preached the good news about the kingdom, uh, this is the same message that we're to preach. I mean, isn't this uh, what we're all waiting for? Uh, that the good news about the kingdom, good news about the king will be preached throughout the whole world and then the end will come. So it's the same message, but specifically what message? It's ultimately a message about what God is like. It's a message about what his kingdom is like. Uh, when we get to Romans, we'll talk a lot more about what is the good news specifically. But Romans 1 opens up telling us what the good news is. Paul would say, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel, the good news to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For notice, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Again, it's a, a salvation, healing, restoring. For, in, uh, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For notice, for in it, in what? In the good news, in the gospel, something's revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. The goodness of God, the character of God. That's what's revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. I mean, this is what restores our trust, our faith, our confidence in God. So when we preach the gospel, it's ultimately a message about who God is. That is the seed that just explodes within. Now, I find this interesting in Matthew three times Jesus told his disciples so plainly what would happen. From that time on, Jesus began to say plainly as to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer much from the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. I will be put to death, but three days later, I will be raised to life. I mean, could he be much more plain than that? 
A second time, next chapter. When the disciples all came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be handed over to those who will kill him. But three days later, he will be raised to life. The disciples became very sad. And a third time, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and spoke to them privately as they walked along. Listen, he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and then hand him over to the Gentiles who will make fun of him, whip him, and crucify him. But three days later, he will be raised to life. Now, wouldn't you think if you were told something three times like that, so specifically that on the third day, you know, it wouldn't have been just a few women at the tomb, but uh, that the disciples would have been there. Well, he told us three times. Um, why didn't they believe it? I mean, they, they didn't want to believe it. Remember, they're still waiting for a kingdom of the world. They're still waiting to conquer the Romans. They're still waiting, what's Jesus going to do? Are we going to be first on his side? And so this message that he would be killed, um, I mean, they, they just did not hear it at all. And it, it just works that way. We, our, our brains, really, it seems, do not hear things that we don't want to hear. And they're rejected. And so I just have to wonder, what is it that uh, we can't hear? Uh, there's actually, uh, you know, the amygdala. Um, when, uh, when you hear something, if it makes you angry and upset, the amygdala kicks in. And what happens when the amygdala kicks in is your cortex basically shuts down and uh, stop listening. And so the disciples here get angry at this message of Jesus, and they just did not process it. So I just wonder, is, is there something that we are not hearing? And I'll just tell you what I think uh, we sometimes don't hear as Christians. Or Jesus would say, you have heard that it was said, love your friends, hate your enemies. But now I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, those who use the name uh, Christians put Christ right in our name. Uh, are Christians generally known as, oh, those are the people that love their enemies and pray for their enemies? Is that the hallmark of a Christian? But now I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may become the children of your Father in heaven. Notice, what's the criteria for becoming a child of God? Love your enemies so that you may become the children of your Father in heaven. Because notice, how does God the Father treat people? For he, the Father, makes his son to shine on bad and good people alike. God is good to his enemies and gives rain to those who do good and to those who do evil. Okay, so God treats even his enemies that way. Be like God. Treat people that way. How about this? I mean, I could make a list of just dozens of passage, passages in the New Testament. Do not judge, do not judge, do not judge. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat, as you treat theirs. The standard you, you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see clearly to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. In other words, to help him out. Um, so do not judge. I like the message translation of this. Don't pick on people, jump on their faults, failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. So, uh, again, do Christians in general have the reputation of not being judgmental people? I mean, uh, this is hammered home so much in the Gospels. Don't judge others. 
but yet we often become the most judgmental people. Well, they're not doing something right and uh, very critical. I mean, this should be a hallmark of a Christian. Oh, those are the people that don't judge and condemn other people. And this, these were the people that Jesus was dealing with as he walked around. So when he was walking through the wheat fields with his disciples on a Sabbath, his disciples were hungry, so they began to pick heads of wheat and eat the grain. What a horrible thing. And uh, remember the Pharisees uh, just jumped all over Jesus for his disciples breaking the Sabbath. And uh, we, this uh, expression comes up so many times in the Gospels, quoted from the Old Testament, where Jesus would say, it is kindness that I want not animal sacrifices. What does that mean? Well, it is almost always in the context of the Pharisees judging and condemning someone. And Jesus would intervene and say, hey, it's kindness I want, not animal sacrifice. Uh, let's give another example. While Jesus was having a meal in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and other outcasts came and joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. Some Pharisees saw this and asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such people? Uh, the riffraff of society, the Message Bible says. Well, Jesus heard them and answered, people who are well do not need a doctor, but only those who are sick. Go and find out what is meant by the scripture that says, it is kindness that I want, not animal sacrifices. I have not come to call respectable people, but outcasts. Jesus is saying, hey, much, much more important than fulfilling your religious duties uh, with the animal sacrificial system is how you treat other people. And I wish you would deal kindly and show mercy to other people. Again, the Message Bible, I'm after mercy, not religion. Uh, much more important that we treat others with love and kindness. Uh, and ultimately, all religion is supposed to bring us to love God and to love our neighbor. If it doesn't succeed in that, then forget carrying out the religious duties. So again, coming back to this passage, which we quoted earlier, where Jesus would say there are two great commandments, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And notice he said this first one, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, this is the greatest and the most important commandment. And I think, um, I mean, if you'd asked the Pharisees, uh, do you love God with all your heart? Um, they would have said, of course, absolutely. And they would know the verse in Deuteronomy, that's, that is the most important thing about our religion. But notice, God came in human form and they hated him, right? So just saying we love God with all of our heart, their picture of God was so contrary to the true God, they actually hated God with all their heart when he showed up. So Jesus came ultimately to introduce us to the real God. Let me show you what he's really like. He came to establish that trust, that friendship, that relationship, a new picture of God. And then ultimately, through Jesus' revelation of God, we now... If we respond to that, we do love God with all of our heart. And when we love God with all of our heart, the natural, unavoidable consequence is that we begin to love our neighbor as ourself. Okay, so this is how it works. So we're just saying we love God with all of our heart. Well, tell me about your God. What's he like? If he's just like Jesus, wonderful. You love God with all your heart and soul. And again, uh, this passage points to where God really wants to reside. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. It is not what goes into your mouth that makes you ritually unclean, rather what, that what comes out of it that makes you unclean. Then the disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees had their feelings hurt by what you said? And Jesus said, don't worry about them. 
Uh, he hurt their feelings. Why did he hurt their feelings? Because for them, it was their religious duties. Uh, that was important, not the internals. Um, did we keep the Sabbath? Again, going through the, all of the list of external things. They washed their hands in a peculiar way. Um, they tithed the tiny seeds they were so careful to try to obey. And Jesus would say, that's not it. Don't you understand? Anything that goes into your mouth goes into your stomach and then on out of your body. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these are the things that make you ritually unclean. For from your heart come the evil ideas which lead you to do all of these bad things. So Jesus came literally to perform a heart transplant, to create a new heart, a right spirit, because devoid of having a new heart and a right spirit, uh, we're really not capable of doing all of the external things. So again, it's back to that seed that he wants to implant within us to change the way we think and act. So ultimately, what God wants, and I have to skip forward here to John just because it said so clearly, this is what God wants. And now I give you a new commandment. Now, is this a new commandment? No, I mean, find this again and again and again, but it's just that we've never done it. I give you a new commandment, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. If you have love for one another, then everyone will know that you are my disciples. So the mark of a real Christian should be the way they treat other people. Again, it's kindness that I want, not animal sacrifices, not carrying out religious duties. Well, all religious duties ultimately are to lead us to love one another. And if you love your neighbors, you love yourself, what religious duties are you not uh, complying with? Okay, a last uh, passage here that is, I think, real significant in Matthew. And Jesus said, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and uh, Greek word here, Petros, and on this rock, we'll just notice here the different word, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, what does that mean? Um, I think it's, you know, for some reason, the way I had always considered this is the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, is that I had imagined this as an aggressive attack against the kingdom. But can you imagine Satan, I mean, do you attack someone with a gate and carry a big gate around to hit someone over the head? Uh, what is a gate for? Uh, it's for keeping things in or keeping things out. And so whatever it is here that Peter touched upon, um, I mean, it literally explodes the gates of hell. I mean, this is a defensive weapon. In other words, understanding this, uh, we're on the offensive here. And what does that mean? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And again, uh, the Message Bible is so, uh, I think, good on this. A church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. So in other words, this, this truth, this understanding... I mean, it literally explodes. Gates of hell cannot contain this truth. Those who are in spiritual darkness, I mean, this is what uh, opens up everything to them. So I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, if you're Peter, uh, my goodness, wouldn't your pride just kind of uh, go through the roof after uh, Jesus said something like this to you? Um, It's interesting, if you read the account in Mark, the very next thing is Jesus says, now I'm going to go up and be crucified, and Peter said, no way, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So it would seem like he was uh, right back down after uh, being elated, perhaps, by this. Uh, but what does that mean? Are we, uh, is the church built on Peter? Is he the rock? And it's interesting here, again, the two words used, Petros is a small pebble or rock, and Petra is a large, fixed, immovable rock. Um, I just quoted the uh, uh, English Standard Version in the Good News Bible. Jesus says this, And so I tell you, Peter, you are a rock, Petros, and on this rock foundation, Petra, I will build my church, and not even death will be able to overcome it. Um, we're built on something much, uh, much bigger than Peter. I mean, God is the rock all the way through the Bible. Uh, I think Peter is essentially here, he's a, like a small pebble. He's understood this truth about who Jesus really is, and Jesus is saying, that's it. And you are now a small pebble joined to the rock. Again, who's the rock? I mean, so many verses on this in Psalms. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. Paul would say that rock in the Old Testament, that was Jesus in referring to the people that went through the wilderness. Paul said, all ate the same spiritual bread, drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that went with them, and that rock was Christ himself. Again, God of the whole Bible is the Son, Jesus. And so I think it is so significant here. Who is it that talks about this rock later on? But Peter, I mean, the one who had this dialogue with Jesus. How did Peter understand this about the rock? So these are Peter's words, again, quoting the Old Testament. As the scripture says, you have found out for yourselves how kind the Lord is. I mean, how do we know how kind the Lord is? It wasn't until he came, really. Come to the Lord, the living stone, rejected by people as worthless, but chosen by God as valuable. Notice, come as living stones and let yourselves be used in building the spiritual temple. So again, this, this revelation, I mean, Jesus came, God in human form, and said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And Peter is acknowledging this. Um, who do people say I am? Well, you are the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're Essentially, you are God. And we are to come as living stones joined to Christ where you will serve as holy priests to offer spiritual and acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. For the scripture says, I chose a valuable stone, which I am placing as the cornerstone in Zion. And whoever believes in him will never be disappointed. This stone is of great value for you that believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone which the builders rejected as worthless turned out to be the most important of all. And so uh, I think what this passage is really describing is um, our picture of God. Is it just like Jesus Christ? Um, You know, in James, you read where the devils believe in one God. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They don't dispute that. And James would say, great, big deal. Uh, There's more than just saying the words. It is really internalizing our picture of who God is. And um, we join the living stone and we take part in building the spiritual temple. And when the spiritual temple is built, I mean, what does that describe? It's God's people reflecting the kingdom, reflecting what God is like in their lives. And uh, that's the good news 
going throughout the world. It's not so much preached with words, uh, but it is lived out in the way we treat people. Okay, let's pray. Father, I pray that each one of us would um, more fully internalize um, this wonderful truth, this seed, uh, this yeast. May it become a part of us. May it transform us and uh, make us capable of reflecting uh, just a little bit to those around us of who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.